Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 23, verses 50 to 56. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible if you have them. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the Pew Bible in the seat in front of you. You can keep it. We have, we have plenty, so that's our, our gift to you. You can look on the screen and you can follow. If you are using a P Bible, you can follow Luke 23, verses 50 to 56 on page 831, bottom of the, of the left-hand column on that, on that page. We've been spending uh, pretty much the entirety of Luke uh, in Luke chapter, or the entirety of Lent in Luke chapter 23, uh, looking at um, the, the final days of Jesus' life leading up to his, uh, to his death and then his resurrection that we're going to observe and celebrate next week. We saw Jesus uh, betrayed by, uh, by his, his, his friends. We saw him you know, brought before Pontius Pilate for his trial. Pilate tried to wriggle out of, the, of his you know, situation. He, he, Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent but he didn't want to deal with the political fallout of exonerating Jesus, so he sent Jesus to Herod. Herod, uh, you know, had heard of Jesus. Jesus' reputation had preceded him with Herod, so Herod, you know, was under the impression that Jesus was this uh, first-class, uh, you know, this world-class entertainer, so he wanted to see a magic trick. He wanted to see a show when Jesus did not obliged and did not, you know, kind of perform for Herod. Herod sends Jesus back to Pontius Pilate. Uh, Pontius Pilate again tries to exonerate Jesus, but to do it in a way that is not going to uh, be politically disadvantageous. So he uh, even tries to, uh, he says, take your pick. You can have Jesus, this relatively harmless teacher, itinerant preacher, homeless you know, broke person that doesn't really, uh, you know, p- present much of a, a threat to you. Or you can have this other guy, Barabbas, a terrorist murderer, tried, convicted, known, repeat offender. He'll probably do it again if he's back out on the streets. Who do you want? It's, a, it's the, the epitome of kind of a no-brainer and, uh, you know, outrageously uh, they, they choose, you know, release Barabbas back to us. In, uh, in verse 26, Jesus goes to the cross. The entire way to the cross, he's thinking of others, speaking to others, encouraging others, right? Uh, warning others of the judgment that is to come, encouraging them to repent of their, of their sin. In verse 32, we looked at the, the crucifixion. It's at a, a location called the place of the skull. Beating, trauma, intense suffering. Verse, 30, uh, verse 39, we looked at the... The two criminals that were crucified alongside Jesus, one mocked him, dismissed him, didn't care at all about Jesus or about eternity. The other trusted in Jesus and asked him for grace, and Jesus saved him. Uh, In verse 44, last week, we looked at the death of Jesus, and, and specifically the spiritual reality of the death of Jesus, the wrath of God against sin being poured out on God the Son, on Jesus Christ, the Father forsaking him, the Father abandoning him, the Father punishing Jesus as if Jesus was the worst of sinners. Today we come to the final passage in the chapter, the burial of Jesus. Jesus is dead at this point. taken down 
from the cross. He's wrapped in linen. He's laid in a tomb. This is a, it's kind of a strange text to, to hear from and to consider, given that we're not going to proceed to the next text for seven more days. It kind of leaves you lingering. It's a text that I think typically is either preached or taught or considered uh, in quick succession with the, the text uh, right, right after it. The, the, you're kind of lingering on the Lingering on the burial of Jesus, Jesus dead, and then, and then just, just in a tomb, in a grave, is just a strange place to reside. For, for a, it's like in music, you have the, like the, the dominant chord, it's kind of the, 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 the key that the song is in, and then the, I'm sorry, the, the tonic chord is the key the song's in. The dominant chord is the music theory name for the one that comes right before it, that's like, you know, if you hear a song and it ends on the, the dominant, like, the dominant chord is the one that kind of has tension built into it that resolves to the, the tonic at the end of the song. And if you hear a song, if someone shuts, you know, hits stop on the CD player, uh, bef- before the tonic, before the dominant chord can resolve to the tonic chord, it's strange. You feel, you feel a little tense inside. You kind of are wondering, you're looking for it to resolve. This, this text is kind of like that. Reading this last passage in Luke 23 without resolving into the first verses of Luke 24 is just a little bit uh, unsettling. It's a little bit awkward. It's a little bit uncomfortable. But it's important. The burial of Jesus is of profound importance. We're going to see that today. We're going to see it as we consider it, as we look at uh, what, what some other verses in Scripture tell us about the burial of Jesus. We're going to establish that it's important and therefore it's worthy of considering and then let, letting it linger for, for the better part of a, of a week. So we're going to look at the burial of Jesus. We're going to consider why it's important and what it means for us. So I'm going to read uh, verses 50 to 56, and then we'll pray and get, get rolling. It says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. He was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down, and he wrapped it in a linen shroud, and he laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come to him from Gal- who had come with him from Galilee, followed, and they saw the tomb, and they saw how his body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And then on the Sabbath day. They rested according to the commandment. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray for our time in your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, encourage us, give us grace. Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we might hear from you and and be changed by the truth of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. This is the first, it's really the only mention of this guy, of of Joseph of Arimathea, 
in the entire Bible. He appears in all four Gospels, but only at this precise moment, right here at the death and the burial of, of Jesus. It says he was a member of the council. That means the, the Sanhedrin. These are the, the rulers of the nation of Israel. You know, judicial, political, religious. Think like the, the Supreme Court. He's powerful. He's prestigious. He's, he's a man of stature, a man of influence. Uh, all the Gospels kind of, you know, come together and kind of give us a collage of Joseph and Arimathea. So Mark 15 tells us that, uh, that he was very, um, or tells us that he was not only a member of the council, but he was a prominent and respected member of the council. So, so we can derive that Joseph of Arimathea was not just a leader in the nation of Israel, which he was, but he was a leader of leaders. He was a leader among the, the leaders. Matthew 27 tells us that he was rich. So kind of the, the full-orbed picture of this guy is he's rich, think equivalent to today, billionaire, you know, a millionaire, very wealthy, powerful, Supreme Court justice, maybe even the chief justice of the Supreme Court because he's most prominent among them. So he's wealthy, he's powerful, he's influential. Luke says that he was a good and a righteous man. Much of, the, much of the members of the Sanhedrin, as we see in the Gospels, were not good men. They were not righteous men. Right? They all were, were part of the religious aristocracy, but they were wicked, selfish, self-righteous. Joseph of Arimathea was in the minority of being a part of the Sanhedrin who happened to be good and, and righteous. These are the same two words, good and righteous, that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 5. Uh, Paul says, uh, for no one would ever die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might dare to die. And he uses those two words, and he obviously has different meanings in mind for them. No one would die for a righteous person, someone might possibly dare to die for a good person. And so you have to kind of understand some of the nuances and the semantic range of the Greek words to understand righteous in this context means uh, upright or uh, in the right, or, or having been declared righteous, right? Uh, righteous means uh, can't be shown to be guilty of anything, can't be shown to have committed anything worthy, warranting of guilt, something like, like that. So righteous means good, clean, solid record. The attorney can't find anything to, to convict you on. That means you're, you're righteous. But good has little to do with legal standing and the fact that you haven't done anything wrong. It has everything to do with moral caliber and just like you're, you're, whether you're a good person, right? Um, not, not a spotless record so much as a loving person, serves others, they're kind to others. So in Romans, when Paul says, no one would die for a righteous man, but someone might dare to die for a good man, he's thinking, you know, um, right, if, if you have a neighbor who... Is they're they're not a, they're not necessarily a good neighbor. There's not a right. They they don't play music loud at night. They don't leave tire tracks on your yard. They don't blow their leaves and what right like a neighbor who like is just keeps to himself doesn't really bother you. That's a that's a righteous neighbor, right? He hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't he hasn't offended you in some way. A good neighbor is the one that you know. As soon as you move into the neighborhood, they bring you cookies, right? They're, they get your mail. They they you know. Take your, your, when you're sick, they bring you, you know, they go to the 
CVS for you or whatever, right? Righteous neighbor versus a good neighbor. Righteous hasn't done anything wrong. Good is, is actively, overwhelmingly good and kind and generous. And so Paul's language is, uh, and, and, and in context in Romans 5, he's saying, no one, no, none of us would die for a righteous person, someone who merely has not done us wrong. But maybe some of us, the most selfless, the most godly, the most uh, generous among us, maybe some of us would give our lives for a good person, someone who has, you know, served us and cared for us and taken care of us so much and elicited so much goodwill that maybe we would lay our lives down for them. But he says, but Jesus, God demonstrates his love for us. Jesus demonstrates his love for us that he died for us while we were sinners, we weren't, we weren't righteous. We actually had committed wrongs against him. We weren't good. We were the opposite of good. And Jesus still willingly dies for us. That's good and righteous and kind of how the Bible uses them. And so Luke is identifying Joseph of Arimathea as someone who is both good and righteous. He, he wasn't a lawbreaker. He wasn't a criminal. He wasn't a, a convict. And he was kind and he was generous and he loved his neighbor. He was a, he was a good person. He, he was, was a righteous person. Matthew and John give us more insight into the the moral fabric, the moral character of um, Joseph. They say that he was a disciple of Jesus. So so when when, when Luke says he was a good man, he was a righteous man, later he's going to say he was looking for the kingdom of God, these kind of qualifiers, what he's he's getting at is this was a, a follower of Jesus. He loved Jesus. He trusted Jesus. Joseph was a rich, powerful, influential ruler, morally exemplary, Godly, kind, loving, gracious, he trusted in Jesus. Although John is quick to point out that he was a disciple of Jesus, but he did so in secret because he feared the, feared the Jewish leaders. So as good as he was, as great of a record as he had, as kind and generous and godly, as much as he trusted Jesus and followed, wanted to follow Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, Struggled with fear of man. He didn't want he didn't want to have a target painted on his back, right? He want, he didn't want to upset the apple cart. He wanted to fly under the radar and keep a, a low profile. Verse fifty one. And he had not consented to the decision and the action of the rest of the the Sanhedrin. So he was there. He was there during the trial of Jesus. He was there when when Caiaphas, the high priest, and the rest of the the contingent kind of uh, around him, when they were accusing Jesus, he did not agree with their accusations. He didn't want to be a party to them. He wanted to see Jesus acquitted. He wanted to see Jesus set free, but he was silent and he let it, he let it happen. He let men that he knew were wicked make a decision that he knew was wrong and unjust. Probably justified it by thinking in his mind, I'm one man, there's dozens of us here. Uh, even, even though I'm one of the more influential people here, I can't sway this entire group. The people that want Jesus dead are dead set on it. At best, right, I'm not going to change anyone's mind. I'm not going to change the final verdict at, at you know, all that's going to happen is I'm going to, I, I'm going to get, you know, canceled. I'm going to, they're going to come after me, right? They're, they're going to want me, uh, you know, stripped of my, of my authority because of my uh, aligning with and associating with Jesus. So I'll just be a fly on the wall. I'll let happen what is going to happen anyway. It's probably not wrong. 
he had stood up and kind of, you know, cry, shouted and, and stomped his feet in the, in the middle of the trial. I, I, I doubt that anything differently would have happened other than he would have just invited, uh, you know, criticism and persecution on himself. So he's not, not only he's wrong, but he is a little cowardly. He's, he's a little too beholden to the fear of man, and he's a, not quite as concerned as he should be with God and what God wanted him to do in that moment. But, nevertheless, despite uh, having these fear of man issues, despite maybe cowering in silence when he should have stood up for Jesus, he still was a godly man, a good man, a righteous man. He was looking for the kingdom of God. That's, that's Luke's way, again, of kind of reiterating that, that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus. As a follower of Jesus, he trusted in, in Jesus. It's not, I mean, if we're going to be technical, not everyone who's looking for the, like, like when, even though Luke says looking for the kingdom of God almost, and uses it synonymously with he was a follower of Jesus or he, uh, you know, was a person who trusted in Christ. Uh, I mean, if we're getting technical, those terms aren't synonymous. It's certainly possible to be looking for the kingdom of God, but not find the kingdom of God or to not enter into the kingdom of God. The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's looking for the kingdom of God, but it's very clear that he trusts in himself and not in Jesus. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Meaning that there are people who are looking for the kingdom of God who are not going to enter into the kingdom of God. Luke 18, how difficult is, is it for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God? So here's wealthy people. Side note, that's all of us. Right? We're, we're some of the wealthiest people in human history. Even the poorest among us are extravagantly rich. When you kind of zoom out and look at all of the world and all of human history. So, so the wealthy, like us, it's extremely difficult for people like us, people who are wealthy, to enter into the kingdom of God, which is sobering. Should maybe give us pause and make us be a little bit introspective about, regardless of how much money we have, uh, how much we love the money that we have. But the point is, uh, wealthy people, it's hard for wealthy people to get into the kingdom of God, which means that there are a bunch of wealthy people that are all trying, trying and striving and attempting and, and looking for the kingdom of God, but they don't get in because it's hard for them to get, to get in. So, so not everyone that's looking for the kingdom of God enters into the kingdom of God. We would do well to consider, right, am, am I someone who, is, who is, has entered into the kingdom of God through repentance and faith, or I'm merely someone who is looking for the kingdom of God, right? Someone who is interested in spiritual things or religion or church. I believe in heaven and hell. I want to go to heaven and not go to hell, but I, have, I, I don't know Jesus. I haven't trusted in Jesus. I'm not obeying and following and walking with, with Jesus. We would do well to ensure that we are not merely looking for the kingdom of God, but that we actually have entered into the kingdom of God through Christ. But Joseph has. Again, according to the other Gospels, Joseph has. He, he's a follower of Jesus. He's good. He's righteous. He's looking for the kingdom of God. He's entered into the kingdom of, of God. Rich man, powerful man, 
loves Jesus, struggles with besetting sins like cowardice, but nevertheless, when given, when given enough time, when given enough of an opportunity to, to pause and reflect and think, what does God want from me in this moment? He comes out, he, he ends up doing the right thing. Verse 52, this man went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Big step. He's out in the open now. Right? I'm publicly identifying with Jesus. Right? Several hours ago, I was kind of cowering. I was letting things transpire. I, I didn't want to out myself as a follower of Jesus. Now I'm going to go ahead and do that. I'm going to go to Pilate. I'm going to say, I want this man to have a proper burial. I want him to have an honorable barrier, right? A burial. You know, I think that we, I think we got this one wrong. I think we commit, con- convicted an innocent man. I think we executed an innocent man. I think we treated him wrongly in this life. And so I think we need to treat him well in death by giving him a proper burial. He's inviting all kinds of fallout here when he's identifying publicly with Jesus. Verse 53, then Joseph took the body of Jesus down and he wrapped it in a linen shroud. John 19 gives us some more details here. It says it wasn't just Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich, uh, influential member of the Sanhedrin, but it was also Nicodemus, who was another member of the Sanhedrin. He was there with Joseph of Arimathea bringing the body of Jesus down and wrapping it in linens. And they, they apply uh, you know, some, some spices and myrrh and aloe and things like, like that. Nicodemus was the one who we saw in John 3 who it says he came to Jesus in the middle of the night to ask Jesus about, uh, about, about salvation and how, to, how you can be born again. So seemingly Nicodemus has maybe some of the same fear of man issues that Joseph of Arimathea has because Nicodemus is going to Jesus, but he's going at night, right? All of his buddies are asleep. It's cover of darkness. There's no electricity. So he can kind of sneak in discreetly and quietly and, and interact with Jesus and kind of learn from Jesus without necessarily doing it publicly and kind of being outed as a follower of, of Jesus. So these guys are similar in a lot of ways, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They take the body of Jesus down, they wrap it. John says with, uh, they, they apply 75 pounds of spices and myrrhs and aloes to the body of Jesus, which is a lot. I mean, that's a lot, that's a lot of stuff to apply to, to a, a dead body. They, they wrap him in linens and then they laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. So yeah, we're, we're kind of... A lot of details from a lot of different Gospels, just rapid fire. Matthew 27 says specifically that this tomb was Joseph's tomb. He bought it for himself. So Joseph is a wealthy man, you know, billionaire status. So you would expect that his tomb would be really fancy, really big and and expensive and, and impressive. Tomb, I mean, even it says where no one had ever been laid. So tombs in that day were often reused or large tombs that were, that were kind of rock hewn like this one would have multiple compartments that they could kind of put several different bodies uh, in and then ones that are at different levels of you know, decomposition they could kind of uh, move or adjust to kind of make, make room accordingly. So a rich person like that, you'd have to be loaded to have a big tomb, a big rock hewn tomb like this that never got used. You were going to be the first person that is ever, whose, whose body is ever going to be put in, in there. So this is a big uh, you know, uh, expensive tomb that Joseph had bought for himself. And he says, nope, I'm, I'm going I'm to willingly 
hand it over and let Jesus, let Jesus' body occupy this tomb that I had formerly bought for myself. Verse 54 says, It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. Sabbath is on Saturday. Right? The, the institution of the Sabbath started in the Old Testament, started in Genesis 1, really. I mean, Genesis 1 through, through 2 is where, the, where the, the pattern is set for it. God works for six days, Sunday through Friday. He's working, he's creating, he's, he's fashioning the earth, he's filling it with, with animals, and, and he's establishing all of the, the, the natural order of things. He kind of puts his crown, jewel, his, 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 the height of his achievement, the height of his creativity, humanity. He puts them uh, on the planet on the sixth day, that's Friday, and then on the seventh day, that's Saturday, God rested from his work. God works Sunday through Friday, and then he rests on Saturday. And shortly thereafter, God gives instructions for his people to have a similar work-life balance like that, right? Have a similar work and rest together in healthy rhythms. God says, I did that. I worked and then I rested, so I want you to work and then you rest. If you know someone who is lazy or idle, they never do any work of any kind, don't have a job, or if, they don't, or if they're retired or, or don't, don't work, if they never serve anyone or do anything or make anything, or if they're never productive in any way, then they're violating the spirit of God's law on the Sabbath. Conversely, if you know someone who's a workaholic or a busybody, constantly in motion, always, you know, always working, never able to slow down or rest or meditate or tend to their own soul, then they are also violating God's law, the spirit of God's law on the, the Sabbath. God intends for work and rest to be kind of held in tension, both, uh, you know, experienced in a healthy rhythm together. That's what God does. That's what God expects his people to, to do. So Sunday to Friday was Sabbath, or Sunday to Friday was the, the, you know, the work week, your normal days when you could work. Saturday was the Sabbath, but days were measured not from morning until evening, but from sunset until sunset the following day. So Sabbath the Sabbath day actually started on what we would call Friday, uh, but when the sun sets on Friday, that's when the Sabbath begins. And then the Sabbath ends when the sun sets on, on Saturday. And so Jesus, we saw that he uh, was crucified at 9 in the morning. He was on the cross at least until 3 p.m., if not longer, sometime after 3 p.m. It's probably several minutes, uh, or if not some period of time, after 3 p.m. before his body is taken down off the cross. So sunset, it, we're, we're creeping closer to sunset. And so they have this work of, of wrapping the body in linens and applying spices and transporting it to the burial site and putting it in the tomb and putting, like all of that needs to be done before the sun goes down lest they violate the Sabbath law by carrying uh, things and, and doing work on the, the Sabbath. So it's getting, it's getting a little tense, right? It's getting a little, uh, we're, we're pressed for time here. Verse 55, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared uh, spices and ointments. So, so this, this detail in verse 55 is important. Women who came with him followed and saw the tomb where his body had been, been laid because, spoiler alert, Jesus is raised from the dead. On, on Sunday morning, he gets up out of the grave and he walks away. And so Luke knows that. He's writing after this has all happened. We know that we have, you know, centuries later. But, so Luke is writing this, this gospel as an apologetic for 
Jesus and his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection. He's writing this to, as, a, as a historical account of who Jesus was and what he did, but he's also writing it um, evangelistically in an attempt to try to help people know who Jesus is so that they can trust in him and follow him. And so he's anticipating an objection here. He's getting inside of the head of his readers and thinking, they're going to read my gospel and they're going to see a bunch of women who they already were not very trustful of. Women weren't allowed to testify in court and things like that. They weren't seen as, as super reliable in the first century. He's going to say, people are going to read this gospel. They're going to see women discovering the empty tomb in, in Luke 24. And they're going to say, sure, fine. Yeah, women found the empty tomb. I, I believe you that women found an empty tomb, but uh, they, they probably just didn't know where Jesus was buried. They probably got lost or mixed up or something like that. And so Luke is, is establishing credibility for the rest of his gospel by saying these women that saw, that, that, that found the empty tomb of Jesus, that were the first to discover the resurrection, they knew what they were doing. They didn't go to the wrong tomb because they had just been to the right tomb 36 hours earlier. They didn't go to the wrong tomb because they were there. They, they literally saw with their own eyes the tomb and the exact positioning of Jesus' body where it, was, where it was laid there in the tomb. There's no chance that they would make a mistake like that that soon after seeing it with their own eyes. So he's establishing credibility and kind of building his, his case. And then verse 56, then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. Again, uh, John shows us that Joseph and Nicodemus had their own had a ton, a bunch of their own spices and ointments, so we're left to just you know deduce that they either ran out of time and weren't able to apply all of it, or maybe they did apply all of it, but the the women said, "Hey, we have some too, and we want to contribute as well." Um, so so yeah, the the, the women are going to go home, prepare their spices and their ointments, and they're going to bring them back on Sunday morning when it is legal for them to apply them and to anoint the, the body of Jesus with them. And then on the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Sabbath day, that's Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. In the church calendar, it's called Holy Saturday. Good Friday, we remember the death of Jesus. Holy Saturday, we remember the burial of Jesus. Easter Sunday, we remember the resurrection of Jesus. And on that Saturday, on that Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. It's the burial of Jesus. So I want to take a few minutes at the end here and just consider why this is important. Right? Why why is the burial of Jesus important? I've heard uh, countless gospel presentations, not a lot of them mention the burial of Jesus. They mention the death of Jesus. The, the, the better of them will mention the resurrection of Jesus. There's plenty of gospel presentations that I've heard or read that don't even mention the resurrection of Jesus. Um, but yeah, it's like at best, death of Jesus, resurrection of Jesus, but very few will mention the burial of Jesus. Um, a, a, a pastor uh, who, of the pastor of the church I went to in college, their, their gospel presentation that they would share when they were doing evangelism, that's, they would always say, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, Jesus was buried to prove that he died, and then Jesus was raised from the dead. And they, they were very, very careful to mention the burial of Jesus. And so, having talked to this brother in years, I called him this week just to kind of 
just to kind of talk with him about this, about, yeah, why, why did you share the gospel that way? What's so significant about, about the burial of Jesus that it, you said it every time that you would share the gospel with someone? We spend a lot of time on the death of Jesus, rightly so, punishment for sin, satisfaction of the wrath of God. We spend a lot of time on the resurrection of Jesus, rightly so, victory over Satan and sin, new life for Jesus, new life for his believers. We rush past the burial of Jesus. But 1 Corinthians 15 warns us not to. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, the gospel that you received, the gospel in which you stand, the gospel by which you are being saved if you hold fast to it. I want to remind you of the gospel. And then he says, here's what the gospel is. It's that I delivered to you that which is of first importance. That Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That Jesus was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Kind of his three point outline of the, the primary, first importance, most importance. Don't leave these out. These matter a lot. Don't sleep on them. Don't overlook them. Don't neglect how important they are. The three things, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus was raised from the dead on, in accordance with the, the scriptures. So it's important. Paul thinks it's important. Paul thinks the burial of Jesus is important. We need to consider why. The most readily apparent is that the burial of Jesus proves that Jesus really died. It puts the question of whether Jesus really died to, to rest, which is maybe not as foregone of a conclusion as we might all think we are, we might all think it is, given the circles that we, that we run in, but there's a lot of people that think that Jesus did not die on Good Friday. The entire Islamic faith does not it, it teaches that Jesus did not die on the cross. It was, a, it was an illusion. Maybe it was a ghost. Maybe it was a switcheroo. Maybe there was a body double that died on the cross and Jesus was kind of, you know, assumed up to, to heaven. The, I, I looked up the Quran. There's a verse that says, Some will say, indeed we have killed the Messiah, Jesus the son of Mary, but they did not kill him. They did not crucify him. Another was made to resemble him to them. They did not kill him. That much is for certain. That's the, that's the Quran. That's the, the teaching of the Islamic faith. So they, uh, Muslims venerate Jesus, see him as a prophet. They celebrate him. They hold him in high regard, but they also recognize that crucifixion is a despicable, shameful act, and they could never accept that someone that, who, that is as venerated as highly as Jesus is would experience as, as terrible and as shameful of a death like that. There has to be some trick. There has to be some other explanation. There's also people who, in an attempt to deny the resurrection, teach that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He just fainted. Or he passed out. He swooned. Right? He fell asleep. So they say, that's how we can explain away the resurrection. Jesus just passed out. He was unconscious. They took him off the cross. They thought he was dead, but he wasn't. Then he woke up, like from a nap, and then just, just walked out. Which, when you consider all the details, is so absurd, so preposterous, it's actually less like, like, it's more likely that Jesus was raised from the dead 
than, than that Jesus didn't really die and then was resuscitated uh, in the tomb on, on Sunday morning. But yeah, guys really think that. They're scholars that think, yeah, Jesus uh, didn't die, was resuscitated. Some speculate, oh, he moved to Egypt, met a nice gal, married, settled down. No one knew him there, right? He kind of, like a rock star, kind of getting off the grid or something. Ridiculous, though, because when you consider the reality of the, the scourging that Jesus endured, the crucifixion that Jesus endured, when you consider that the Roman soldiers who were tasked with killing Jesus, like they knew, they knew that Jesus died. They, they, they were experts of death. They, all they did was kill people, and they did it themselves under penalty of death. If they accidentally didn't kill someone that they were tasked to kill, and then that guy walked away, they would get killed. So they made sure. They, they would not certify that this person is dead if he wasn't. And the way that they certified it with Jesus is by stabbing him with a spear into his side, through his lung, through his heart, declaring with certainty, this man is dead. So the burial of Jesus like locks it down, assures us without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus really died. And that, the fact that Jesus really died is very important. It's very meaningful for us because we are all going to die. Pretty startling statistic. One out of every one people die. Maybe not today. Probably not today, probably not tomorrow. Someday you're going to die. Someday you're going to face the inevitability of death. When you do, it will be better for you to have a Savior who has gone before you in death. A Savior who has died. Not a Savior who pretended to die, or a Savior who evaded death, but then you're going to have to die, but he'll try to save you from death. A Savior who actually really did die. He experienced death. His body was put into a grave, right? We have a Savior who knows what death is like. We don't know what it's like. We don't know what it feels like. We don't know what the experience is like. We don't know what's on the other side of death apart from God's Word. It's kind of mysterious. It's kind of scary. Jesus died. Jesus knows what death is like. He knows what death holds. And so when we trust in Jesus, we're trusting in someone who can give us confidence and give us assurance and give us surety of what will happen when we die. We can, we can approach death with confidence because we are holding and being held by Jesus who conquered death, experienced death, and conquered it. Our advocate is someone who has died and has defeated death. That's one reason why the burial of Jesus is so important, because it, it, it assures us that Jesus really died, and that is of profound importance, and frankly, that is something from which we can derive profound comfort, the death of Jesus. Something else to consider when we think about the burial of Jesus and, and Holy Saturday between Good Friday and Easter is, where was Jesus? Where, where did he go? Like if Jesus' body was in the grave, where was his soul? Where was his spirit? Where was, he, uh, where, where was his, his consciousness? Where was Jesus? A lot, a lot of different, you know, a lot of different guys say a lot of different things with a lot of different levels of certainty on this. 
Um, a lot of people think that Jesus went to hell. Jesus, Jesus' soul, his consciousness was in hell between when he died on Good Friday and when he was raised from the dead on Easter Sunday morning. They get that from, there are some versions of the Apostles' Creed, which we're going to recite next week. Um, uh, but there, there are some versions that, that say that Jesus descended into hell after he crucified and died and was buried. And those same people look at the Apostles' Creed or, or those uh, translations of the Apostles' Creed they also look at texts like Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 3 and 4, and they kind of draw the conclusion that Jesus went to hell, spent time in hell between his death and resurrection. The Bible's pretty clear, I think, that that's not the case. That's not where Jesus went between his death and resurrection. Right? He tells the criminal on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. That's not hell. That's not, you know, that, that's, that's, that's in the glorious presence of our Father, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the moment that you die, your, your soul, your, your consciousness, what you experience goes to be with, doesn't go to purgatory, doesn't go to some other place by some other name. It goes to be with, with Jesus. We can also know that Jesus didn't go to hell after he died because he had already finished his, he had already finished making atonement for sin. He'd already finished suffering in place of sinners. The last words of these shouts on the cross is, it is finished. It's done. Atonement is complete. I'm done. One theologian says, Christ in his death experienced the same things that believers in this present age experience when they die. His dead body remained on earth and was buried just as ours will be. His spirit, or his soul, passed immediately into the presence of God in heaven, just as ours will be. Then on the first Easter morning, Christ's spirit was reunited with his body, and he was raised from the dead, just as ours will be. Right? Christians who have died will be reunited with their bodies and raised in their perfect resurrection bodies to new life when Christ returns. So Jesus, when he died, and Jesus spent Holy Saturday, the time between his death and his resurrection, in the presence of God in heaven. You know, again, you'll, you'll hear, like, there's, there's a lot of guys that have, you know, heaven, hell, paradise, Abraham's side, Hades, Sheol, Gehenna, purgatory, soul sleep. There's, there's a, and there's the guys that are like, oh, I know where all those are. Like, I could, I could GPS it to them, right? And you go there for, you go, when you die, you go there. But then, it, then this thing happens, then you go from there to there. And, and they like, have all these, it's like, it's, you can't really know. I don't, read the whole Bible, you can't really know any of that stuff. Uh, what I can tell from reading scripture is that when you die, you go to be, if, if you're a believer and you die, then you, you go to be with Jesus right then. And it's wonderful and it's glorious. If, you, if you're not a believer, if you're not trusting in Christ and you die, then you are consigned, you're, you're separated from him, you're consigned to judgment right then. There will be a point in the future when, when the day of the Lord comes, the end of human history, when our bodies will be resurrected from the graves where they're buried, our souls will be reunited with them, and then from that point on we will spend eternity in our resurrected bodies, either in heaven with Jesus or in hell apart from Jesus. That, those are the things that Scripture is clear about, but all the other you know, details, timelines, is, is just speculation. So, Jesus' burial. It, it, it assures us that Jesus died. Right? It tells us that when Jesus died, he went to be with his Father in heaven. 
Through his death, he announced his victory over death. He announced the sufficiency of his death to save sinners, right? People everywhere on earth in the spiritual realms, angels, demons, departed saints, spirits. Jesus' death proclaimed to them, I have saved sinners. They can now be welcomed into the presence of the, of the Father. And then lastly, I just wanted to look at a couple of other verses that, that talk about and, and kind of reference the burial of Jesus and why they're, why they're important. Uh, the burial of Jesus was mentioned several places in the Old Testament such that Jesus being buried uh, was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, even though he had done no violence, even though there was no deceit in his mouth, they buried him with the wicked in the grave of a rich man. If Jesus wasn't buried alongside sinners, wicked people, in the grave of a rich man, he would not have fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. Psalm 16, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead or let your Holy One see decay. Psalm 16, which is alluding to the Messiah, presupposes that the Messiah is going to die and be buried before God himself raises the Messiah from the the dead. The the, The Old Testament anticipates that a Savior would come and die and be buried. There's also theological implications at stake. Romans chapter 6, Paul says, Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Paul's talking about, um, you know, if we're saved by grace, then what's the purpose of living a godly life? If we're to sin so that grace may abound? He says, no. How can we, how can we live in sin when we've died to it? Right? We've been baptized into Christ Jesus' death. We were buried with him through baptism so that we might be raised from the dead Uh, and walk in newness of life with him. So Paul says the burial of Jesus has profound implications because that's what we are likened to when uh, when, when a believer is baptized and kind of immersed in water. It kind of symbolizes the burial of Jesus. And then when they're brought up out of the water, it symbolizes the resurrection of Jesus, which itself is a template for, a prototype for, a believer dying to sin, and living a new life. So Jesus' burial has everything to do with our Christian life and our sanctification. Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, Romans 6, one more. Is, uh, we, we referenced it a little earlier, the, the Sabbath, right? Genesis 1 through 2. You can kind of see glimmers of the death and the burial of Jesus in the creation of the world in Genesis 1 through 2. It kind of foreshadows it a little bit. Genesis 1 through 2, six days, God creates the world. Seventh day, he rests. He stops what he's doing. He's finished. He puts down his work, and then he rests and enjoys his creation on the Sabbath day. That's Genesis 1 through 2. Jesus comes on a mission sent by his Father with a task to accomplish. He's, He's got work to do. He leaves heaven, comes to earth, lives a life of active obedience, perfect submission to his father, loving his neighbor, spends 33 years on earth here working hard to fulfill the law of God, satisfy God's demand for righteousness, and it culminates in a six-day work week in Jerusalem. Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Sunday and spends a week, spends six days working, preaching in the temple, confronting sin, teaching about the kingdom of God, calling people to repentance and faith. For six days, Sunday to Friday, Jesus is working. Just like his father was at creation, Jesus is working. And just like God 
then rested on the Sabbath day. Jesus is killed on Friday. He's buried in the tomb. The last thing he says is, it's finished. God works for six days and says, it's finished, I'm going to rest. Jesus works for six days and then says, it is finished. He's buried. He spends Holy Saturday, Sabbath day, in the grave, as it were, resting. Six days, proclaiming the kingdom, atoning for sin. Seventh day, puts down his work. It is finished. He is resting. The burial of Jesus is a, it's a stark, it's a stubborn reminder that Jesus really did die for us and that what Jesus did for us on the cross really was enough. There was nothing left for him to do. Jesus took your sin onto himself. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for you. He took it. He bore it. There is none left. It is finished. It is done. You don't need to fear the wrath of God. You don't need to fear punishment for sin. You don't need to fear judgment. You don't need to fear hell because Jesus died for you, and we know that he died for you because he was buried in a grave. He finished his mission. He accomplished your salvation, and he gives it freely to you if you come to him and trust in him. That is of first importance, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that Jesus was buried in a grave, and then that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death on the cross. We thank you for the sufficiency of your death on the cross to accomplish our salvation. We thank you that you were buried, and because of your burial, we can know that your death happened and that it was sufficient. We thank you that the resurrection is real. We thank you that we will be raised from the dead with you. And Lord, we look to you, and we trust in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.